Father, we thank you that you have uh, preserved your word for us. Lord, it's a privilege to be able, uh, really at any time that we want, to uh, open up your word and, and see uh, the truth of your character, to see the reality of the gospel, and to see how your story of redemption has unfolded throughout uh, the very beginning uh, into the present and how it's going to unfold uh, into the future. We thank you for preserving uh, your word for us and thank you that we have access to it. We ask as we, as we turn to your word, God, that, that you would give us help. We, we know that we can't come uh, to you or to your word and, and automatically understand or automatically benefit uh, due to something uh, understanding uh, within us, but, but that you have to do uh, the work of revealing. You have to do the work of opening our eyes, softening our hearts, making us humble and contrite, uh, trembling under the goodness and the authority of your word. And so we ask that you would produce that disposition uh, in each of us this morning. God, that you would make us teachable, that you would make us receptive, that you would make us humble, that you would also make us hungry to hear from you and to be guided by you, uh, to be challenged by you, to be comforted by you, to be encouraged by you. And so we ask that you would send your spirit to do all of those things. You know exactly where each of our hearts are. You know exactly what each of us needs to hear. Would you, would you come and do that work in us and, and take each of us one step closer to your son, Jesus Christ? We pray this in his perfect and precious name. Amen. So we're starting a series in uh, 1 Corinthians um, called uh, The Wisdom of God for a Secular Age. And, and uh, we've spent a lot of time over the last, um, really since fall, uh, going through kind of topical series. And uh, we're back to kind of going through a book of the Bible. And one of the reasons we want to do that is because we, we value uh, God's Word. And we believe that going through it in a sort of systematic, orderly way, it really teaches us, one, how to read the Bible. It helps us to deal with uh, topics or themes that are important to God and important to living out uh, discipleship to Jesus that we might not intentionally uh, decide to cover on our own, but, but going through a book kind of sets the agenda of what we work through. And getting uh, concentrated time in a book of Scripture actually does a work of formation in us. It, it changes us and it shapes us. And, and our hope uh, for 1 Corinthians is that going through this book, we hope that it would uh, shape myself and shape each of us to really see and savor that God's wisdom, though it in many ways will look foolish to our time and to our place, God's wisdom is life-giving, it's good, it's freeing, and it's worthy of our trust and obedience. That's our hope, that we would see the wisdom of God in a new uh, light and in a new way. Uh, this, this series, uh, The Wisdom uh, of God in the Secular Age, is really rooted uh, and tied to this, this church, the, the Church of Corinth um, in this first century city. And when we think about uh, the cities in which biblical letters are set in, sometimes we, we, we just know them by name and we really know nothing else. Right? So when we hear that Jesus went to Galilee and Jesus was from Nazareth, it's like saying Jesus was, was from some town I never heard of and some other town I never heard of. It makes no difference to me at all. You might as well tell me that Jesus was from Mars, right? What do I know about Nazareth? What do I know about Galilee? Nothing. However, when we come to this letter, if we get the opportunity to actually think about, well, what was life like in Corinth? What was this city like? What were these people dealing with? What was this place like? What did it feel like? What did it smell like? What did it taste like? When we begin to think about those things, we begin to see the wisdom of God for our time as well. We begin to see that Corinth is actually a lot like Boston. We have two global cities, two diverse cities, two complicated cities, two cities full of all sorts of beliefs, all sorts of practices, all sorts of backgrounds, all sorts of dispositions, and we see the kingdom of God breaking into two global diverse cities. 
So when we begin to see and feel what Corinth was like, we begin to understand the relevance of the good news of Jesus for our time today. Uh, this series, we're calling it The Wisdom of God in a Secular Age. And I want us to, to, to kind of put some terms around that, that idea of a, of a secular uh, age. How many of you guys have heard the phrase secular before? All of you, because you're all so smart, right? Um, Basically, you could think of it like this. Well, I don't want to spend a, a thousand uh, minutes giving you a lecture on, on, on this, but really just think about it like this. It's a, an understanding of meaning, purpose, morality, um, and a kind of a vision for living that does all of the answers to those big questions, uh, answers all of them by detaching anything transcendent or anything divine. It says all meaning is local, all meaning is empirical, all meaning is things that we can see, touch, taste, Feel there is really no trace of the divine um, that has any meaning breaking into our lives now and today. That's kind of a, a, a secular age. And so that is kind of the thinking that is predominant in the West. It's not predominant in the world. Uh, religious belief is growing everywhere um, for the most part, except for in the West. It's just us um, <laughs> that say, no, 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 no. Everything is just what we see, taste, feel, and can count or put in a pie graph, right? It's just, it's just us. Everywhere else, it's, it's, it's expanding and it's booming. And so when we have this climate of uh, everything is, is, is local, everything is empirical, uh, there is no sense of the transcendent, of the divine breaking into our lives, into our meaning. If you have that as a cultural climate, then, and then somebody steps into that climate, and start speaking about Jesus, the God who came down from heaven to save us and to lead us into life uh, in an abundant life. When we have that coming into a secular age, do you know what that message sounds like? Foolishness. That message sounds foolishness. It sounds ridiculous. It doesn't even sound like a potential option on the menu, all right, on the buffet menu of beliefs. It sounds like something that just not, is, is not even a possibility. And I want us to see that when we feel those tensions, maybe in the present, that's very, much what, that's very much what Paul experienced when he went to Corinth to preach the gospel there. That the message that he brought was foolish not only uh, in our present time, but was very foolish in the time of Corinth. That it was just as much of a foolish message then as it is now. And when we see that, we begin to see the wisdom of God in a new and a different way. So let's look at uh, the first couple of verses in 1 Corinthians and begin to see what happens when the wisdom of God starts to come into a diverse, big, complicated, um, global city context. What happens when God's wisdom shows up in Corinth? Because that's going to show us what it might look like for God's wisdom, the good news of the gospel, to break into Boston and across the globe as well. So let's look at verses uh, 1 through 3 of 1 Corinthians. This is the intro written by the uh, Apostle Paul as he writes the church of Corinth. He says, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. Uh, verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth. So this means that there is a what in what? There is a church in where? A church in Corinth. This alone is a miracle. There is a church in Corinth. This is the miracle of the passage. There is a church in Corinth. Amen. There is a church in Corinth. This is miraculous. There is a church in Corinth. God's kingdom has come to earth. There is a church in Corinth. 
Corinth was a global, diverse, uh, modern inner city. It was uh, destroyed by the Romans and rebuilt as a colony where, in which everyone came to. Asians, Syrians, Jews, Egyptians. It was a melting pot of melting pots. A couple hundred thousand people in a small area. Think of a, a diverse, educated, global inner city. That's the city of Corinth. Corinth's resume was this. It was intellectually alert, materially prosperous, and morally corrupt. Corinth makes the Las Vegas Strip look like a monastery. Corinth, if it had a campaign slogan to recruit residents to move there, Corinth's campaign slogan would be this, city life, fast life, where anything goes. Corinth, the characters in Corinth, there was the, the business person or the businessman or the businesswoman, the merchant who made all their gain by any and every means, lusting and reaching, uh, lusting and desiring for more. There was the person of pleasure surrendering themselves to every lust, lusting for pleasure by any means. There was the athlete who disciplined uh, their body to every type of exercise and regiment, uh, lusting for success and striving for it at any cost. And at the center of the city of Corinth was a temple about 2,000 feet high in the air, the temple for the goddess Aphrodite. And part of the worship was the ritual practice of temple prostitutes. And so every night, flooding down from that temple into the heart of the city would be uh, roughly 1,000 to 2,000 prostitutes flooding into the city to enact ritual worship through prostitution. This is the city of Corinth. To the church of God, in Corinth. Do we, do we see the miracle? Do we, do we see the wonder? Do we see what is happening when the kingdom of God breaks into a diverse global city? All of these things that we just laid out about uh, Corinth, none of these things would, any, uh, would, would lead any Roman person to bat an eye. Temple prostitutes, some of you, <laughs> some of you saw like this, just started the lean back, right? For a Roman citizen, that's like getting a cup of coffee. That's no big deal. There's no batting of the eye. The worship of gods in all these sorts of ways, uh, food being attached to the worship of God, they would not bat an eye at any of those things. What they would bat an eye at would be this, the message that there is one God who, instead of leaving the body to be elevated, uh, left heaven to be denigrated by becoming man. That's what they would bat an eye at. That's what sounds strange. That's what sounds perverse. That's what sounds foolish. That's what sounds silly, the message of the gospel. Part of the ethos of Corinth was this, uh, this kind of idea, this sort of law, that what drove everything was the desire and the dreams of the individual. That whatever dream you have, go for it. Whatever lust you have, go for it. Whatever ambition you have, go for it. Go and express and live out what is true and desirous inside of you. Does that sound familiar to any of us? And so when we begin to look at the makeup of the city of Corinth, we begin to see that though there are some differences in terms of the time and the place, there are some very concrete similarities between the age of Corinth and the age of the present, between the age of thinking in Corinth and the secular age that we live in in the West, where the desires of the individual rule over anything and everything. And into this city comes the good news of Jesus on the lips of the Apostle Paul to preach the message of Jesus and to plant churches with his friends. But as Paul enters into Corinth, he enters into Corinth with bruises on his body and fear in his heart. 
We look at Acts 18 and we see the narrative of what happened when Paul went to Corinth, but when we look a couple chapters back into Acts 16, which is probably not much more than several weeks, we find out that, that Paul in Macedonia preached Jesus and had a hard time. It was, he was beaten uh, viciously, and so he's coming into Corinth with bruises on his body, but I think he's also coming into Corinth with a lot of fear in his heart. He later tells us in the letter to the First Corinthians that he came to them with, in much fear and trembling. I think Paul, because he is a human being, he enters into Corinth fearful. He enters into Corinth bruised, but also fearful. Paul, because he's a human being, likely enters into this city thinking, I have never been into a city like this to preach the message of Jesus. How is this going to go? I think Paul is thinking to himself, if they beat me for preaching Jesus in Macedonia, what is going to happen to me when I get into a global city? It's like going to preach Jesus in Sioux Falls and getting beaten and then having to go to the inner city of New York <laughs> the next week and thinking, if they beat me here, they're going to burn me alive here. And so Paul, I imagine, is coming into Corinth with significant fear, doubt, and worry because he is a human being, wondering how will the good news of God go forward in a city like this? You, you ever wonder that? And here's what happens when the good news of Jesus collides with an anything-goes global city. Let's look at Acts 18, just the first 11 verses to see the narrative of what happens when the good news of God breaks in to a global city. Acts 18.1, after Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. So this again shows us kind of the diversity of Corinth. There, the people are being kicked out of other places, and they're flooding into the city of Corinth. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he, Paul, reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. So he's preaching the gospel in the synagogues of Corinth. Five, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed him and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper, worshiper of God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many people, or for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. What's so cool about the book of Acts is it gives us so much background on all of these, uh, on so many of the letters uh, in the New Testament that Paul writes. So we find out here is what happens when Paul sets foot in this global city. We can begin to understand why he was fearful. We can begin to understand uh, why he had maybe some, some doubts and trepidations. And we begin to see exactly what happens when he gets there. When Paul gets there, he, he naturally, as a Jew, he, he ends up crossing paths with two Jews, Priscilla and Aquila. We can imagine immediately Paul is probably like, oh, two Jews, let me see if they know about, about the Jew of all Jews. Let me see if they know about Jesus. 
And Paul starts maybe sharing the gospel with them. Maybe, maybe uh, they become uh, converted through that, or maybe they already knew of Jesus. We, we don't know, but he immediately becomes friends with Priscilla and Aquila. They share the same trade. Uh, they they sh- end up sharing the same Savior. Somehow, we, we don't know if that was before or after or whatever. He immediately begins, becomes friends with them, and he immediately after that begins to go preach in the synagogues. So he's preaching Jesus. He, 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 the, uh, God is filling him with enough courage to preach Jesus in the synagogues. And then in, in verse 5, we find out two people show up, uh, Silas and Timothy. So Paul's two road dogs, his two boys, his friends show up. And so now in Corinth, we have this little group of disciples of Jesus. We got Paul, we got Silas, we got Timothy, we got Priscilla, we got Aquila. We got five people to help this diverse, complicated, confused, global city know the good news about Jesus. How about that? And what happens from there? They continue to preach. And Paul next encounters a little bit of what? Resistance, conflict, fists, right? Uh, It goes down a little bit. And he says, I'm not preaching to y'all no more, only to them. They get mad, but they don't hit me. So I'm going to go preach to them. And he goes and he begins to continue to preach. And there's more drama. But in the midst of the drama, what does God do? He leads people to Jesus. Corinthians begin to believe. Crispus believes, ruler of the synagogue, person of influence, begins to believe, and many are baptized. And Paul stays there for a year and a half, preaching and teaching Jesus in a city where the message of Jesus sounds like complete, utter rubbish and nonsense. This is what happens when the kingdom of God breaks in to the city. Two points I really want us to see as we begin to frame up this book for, for study over the next several uh, weeks. This is the first thing I want us to see, is that there is no place, no person, no people that are too far gone or too secular for the call of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no person, no people, no place to whatever for the call of God in Jesus Christ. The fact that a church is established in Corinth ought to blow all of our limits out of the water. The fact that this letter exists ought to inspire in us supreme confidence in the call of God to bring the good news of Jesus into the lives of anyone and everyone. This letter ought to inspire and encourage in us. I want us to think about this, the call of God. Notice that when Paul is in the city, he's dealing with conflict. He sees many people come to Jesus, or at least several, and then he has a vision. He has a vision in which God inspires him and puts courage into him by saying, do not be afraid. I am not going to let anyone harm you. And more than that, I have people, I have many in this city who are my people. God encourages Paul by letting Paul know that God has a call on the lives of many in the city of Corinth. Think about it like this. Through Paul's lens, even though he was a man of great faith, filled with the Holy Spirit, through Paul's lens, when he looks out, imagine Paul goes people watching in Corinth. How many of you people watch from time to time? right? It's a great, great side hobby. Imagine Paul in the middle of Corinth doing a little people watching, and he's watching all these people, and he just, imagine him think, imagine he thinks like us, and he just looks at these people and says, 
there's no way. There's just no way. Look at how this person dresses. Look at their hair, right? There's, there's no way. When Paul, imagine if Paul has our eyes, he sees Corinth, and all he sees is rebellion from God, foolishness, wild living, right? That's all, if he had our eyes, that's all he would see. And it's as, it's as if Paul, it's as if rather God, through this message to Paul, is telling Paul, you need to see these people in a whole new way. You need to understand that where you see people who look like they are far from God, I see my future sons and daughters. Where you see people who don't know me, I see people who are going to come to know me, follow me, and love me in a few months, in a few years, in a few days. So you keep preaching. You and your friends, you keep preaching. You keep praying. You keep sharing. Do not be afraid because my call is stronger than the externals that you see. Is that not a message for us? Is that not a message for every city? The thing about a city is you can always look at people who are different than you and say there's no chance for them. And so we need to understand the call of God is so much greater than the external barriers to God that we perceive as being impossible to be overcome. That is what we see as Paul goes to Corinth. This idea of the call of God. If we look at First, uh, first uh, Corinthians, those first three verses, you notice call is all over that passage. Paul called by God to be an apostle. Church of Corinth who calls on the Lord Jesus. This idea of a call. Now, I know we only text now, so this call, you're like, what is a call? What is, a, what is this calling that you speak of, right? The call of God. That's what... Uh, God is giving Paul as an encouragement in, in, in Acts 18, 9 and 10, this idea that I am going to call many in this city to myself, this idea of the call of God. I want you to think of this uh, in this way, that the call of God is God's constant invitation to turn from sin and receive grace through Jesus. The call of God is God's constant invitation to repentance and salvation in Jesus, and it's a call that goes out to sinners. The call of God is God constantly, through the gospel, inviting, speaking, wooing, giving an, uh, a VIP invitation to sinners to turn from their sin and receive His love and grace in Jesus. That is the call of God. And the call of God comes in the gospel of God. The good news that Jesus leaves heaven to die for our sins as our sacrifice upon a cross for us, to rise victorious over the grave, to welcome us into relationship with God and into living for the kingdom here and now, that good news that is received by faith, not by works, that good news, anytime it is read, anytime it is preached, anytime it is spoken out loud, that is the actual active voice of God in the world calling the hearers of that message to turn to Him. So God is always calling. He is always calling people to receive the call of the gospel. That's the only way that the Corinthians, that there is a church in Corinth. Because the call of the gospel went out. The only reason many of you follow Jesus is because the call of the gospel went out. That is the call of God. 
Now, if we're going to keep with the call thing, excuse me, it's a little cheesy, right? But when you get the call, there's two buttons, right? What's the one that you hit most of the time when someone calls you? The red. You say, text, text me. I don't want to talk. Text me. When that call comes in, you got the green and the red. If we were to extend this analogy, excuse the cheesiness, but hopefully it will help with understanding. If we were to extend this analogy, the human heart's default to receiving the call of the gospel, is it the red button or is it the green button? It is the red. Our hearts are default prone and wired out of love for self and being seared by sin. Our heart's default response to the call of God's forgiveness is always to reject. Think of it like this. It's the family member that you don't want to talk to, right? It's what you do when that person calls you, right? That's how we respond to God in our natural ability. But the call of God is not just a call that goes out at many points in times. God makes it not just a general call, but he makes it a call that is a transformative. A call that when we hear the call, a new uh, response is also placed in us by the very same call that we're hearing. And that's what happens at Corinth. That some people hear the call and their response is to beat the snot out of Paul. And other people hear the call and their response is to weep at the love of God. Now, what's the difference? What's the difference between the person who hears the message of the gospel, the call of God from Paul, and their response is, where is the closest two-by-four? And somebody else hears the call and their response is, where is the next box of Kleenex? Because I am weeping at the love of Jesus Christ to give himself for me. What is the difference? Is the difference that the person who hears the call and responds is smarter? And they say, actually, no, this gospel makes more sense. And the person with the two-by-four is just stupid? No, the difference is the Spirit has done something inside of their hearts, so now the call that sounds foolish actually looks beautiful. The call has become transformative. And this is what God loves to do. And this is how God encourages Paul. He says, my call in the gospel is so much stronger than all the foolishness and sin that these people are doing. My love is so much bigger than all the wild garbage that they're doing. My love is so much deeper than the idolatry that they are engaged in. And so I'm going to call them through your, live, through your preaching. I'm going to call them to myself. And my call is not just a call that they're going to hear and say, mm, maybe. But my call at some point in time is going to transform their hard hearts to see that this gospel is beautiful because of the person in it, Jesus Christ. And that's what puts courage into Paul. That's what's going to put courage into him. That's what's going to help him stay for a year and six months, preaching, while looking over his back and and thinking, is the guy with the two-by-four coming again? That's what's going to put courage into him. So this is the first lesson for us, that there is no person, no place, no people too unlikely, too secular for the call of God in the gospel. I hope that encourages you. I hope that encourages you if you're here and you're beginning to just think about, is Jesus a real and viable thing? If you're comfortable, just ask him. Say, if you make that transformative reality in my heart, like if, that's, if you're really real, do, do that in my heart. Do that in my heart. Ask him. But I hope it would encourage you if you're following him to, to know that God's power to transform, to redeem, is stronger than the externals that we think cannot be overcome. And take encouragement in this as an aside. Five friends in Corinth start this movement. Five friends. Priscilla, Aquila, 
Silas, Timothy, and Paul. Five friends. I mean, you got five friends, I think. What might, I mean, this is why we planted this church, right? This is, this is why Redeemer exists, to see this happen in our lives and the lives of others, right? God has done great things through our church plant, but think of what he might continue to do. If he can do this through five friends, through the power of the gospel, what might he do with you? What might he do with your gospel community? What might he do with all of us? Right? Just think of the possibilities because of God's deep love for the city. Now, what happens once the Corinthians hear the call? Because as we've just outlined, the Corinthians were kind of a wild bunch, Right? I mean, we haven't even got into all of them. I'm saving some of their wildness for later sermons. I want to give it all away on the first week. But they're a wild bunch. So what happens when, when, uh, it, when the, the good news of Jesus breaks into the lives of people uh, who lived in such ways that make us raise an eyebrow? What, what happens when the call of Jesus comes to a global, idolatrous, diverse, secular people in city? What, what happens? Well, here's, here's what happens is there be, begins to be a process of transformation. Hearing, hearing the call of the gospel means being made new in our hearts, not just embracing new information in our minds. And when we're made new in our hearts, there begins to be an overflow of a new way of living. Now think about Corinth. You have this group of people who lived in such ways that seemed so counter to the ways of Jesus, and now they get introduced to Jesus, it's going to be a pretty messy process for them, even with a new heart, to begin to live out the ways of Jesus, is it not? And that's why when we look at the letter of the first Corinthians, we notice this, that Paul kind of goes from topic to topic. He goes, now concerning this, and now concerning this, and now concerning this, because he's dealing with people who have no framework for anything or most anything related to the ways of Jesus. And so he must answer question after question. They must unlearn and relearn what it means to live as part of the kingdom of God in a diverse global city. Much like our process. When we begin to follow Jesus, there is relearning, unlearning, correction, comfort, conviction. Same thing when we see Corinth. And here's the second and last point I want us to see. That the call of God in the gospel means faith and transformation that often does not make sense to our cultural context. The people of Corinth are going to start living and inhabiting their life and their bodies in ways that just look strange to Corinth. They may stop eating food sacrificed to idols, which everyone did. It's kind of like becoming vegan in Memphis, Right? Like, city with the best barbecue in the world, you show up, you're a vegan. They're like, who are you and what planet from which have you come? Right? What is happening? It's a new way of living and being that just does not make much sense. That's exactly what the people of Corinth are going to begin to experience. What you uh, think, think about it like this is that the good news of Jesus does not simply save us from past sin, but then it also saves us into a new ethic of living following the way of Jesus. We're saved from something and we're saved, saved uh, to something. This means learning and unlearning. Think of, uh, you know, a great illustration of this is actually uh, recent in the news. Uh, how many of you know who Meghan Markle is? Right? So she uh, is an actress, a self-professed California girl. Um, and uh, I don't know a ton about this, so someone's going to correct me when I'm wrong. But she's married into royalty of some sort. Um, right? <laughs> to, to, put it, to put it lightly. Um, so there's, there's new practices for her. Uh, and it, actually, if you begin to read into this, it's... It, 
testifies to kind of the uh, vapidness of our culture, but there's long news segments that you can watch on YouTube uh, where analysts are debating all the ways in which her life is going to change. What things will she be able to do? What things will she not be able to do? Because she is now moving from a, literally a new kingdom, right? <laughs> the kingdom in which she lived before into a, into a new royalty. She, her, she has a new identity, a new, uh, new way of being, a, a new storyline to her life, right? And so there's some things that she's going to keep doing. There's some things that are just going to be different. And it's the same thing for us as disciples of Jesus, that the call of the gospel doesn't just save us, but it transforms us, which requires learning and unlearning and relearning. And that's exactly what the people of Corinth are going to deal with and go through. Their allegiances have shifted. Their, their, the master of their lives has shifted from self to Christ. And is that not the same process that we deal with as well? And so I want us to see this, is that just as Corinth, through the letter to uh, through the letter that Paul writes to them, just as they are going to be challenged to a new way of living, they're going to be corrected in some spots of their lives that hit close to the heart. Just as Corinth is going to be challenged by the wisdom of God that seems counterintuitive to their age, so too are you. If you will take disciple to Jesus, a discipleship to Jesus seriously at any ounce or level, if you actually will take Jesus serious, you will take him at his word, he will, through his word, challenge you in counterintuitive ways to your thinking, to our city, to our world, to our culture, to our hearts. He will challenge you to live, to embody, and to be, and to give, and to sacrifice, and to love in ways that are counterintuitive to the deepest ideas and ideals that you have lived with for most of your life. Are you ready for that? Now it's a process, but are you ready for that? Are you ready to let the wisdom of God permeate every part of your life and your discipleship to Jesus? Because this wisdom of God, according to Corinth, looks foolish. According to our natural ideas, also looks foolish. Will we trust the wisdom of God in the gospel? It really comes down to some of these questions, and I want to ask these to us as we prepare to spend more time in this letter over the coming weeks. As we get ready to dive into this letter, uh, 1 Corinthians, I want to ask you a couple of questions and, and, and sit with them over, over the weeks to come and, and, and even in this moment. But as we go through this book, will you let Jesus challenge you and align you to the ways of his kingdom? Will you believe that God has more wisdom than you do? And will you commit to take him at his word? Will you trust that the God who gave his very own son for you wants what's good and flourishing for you, not just in terms of your salvation into eternity, but for your kingdom living into the present? Because this letter is going to encourage us, this letter is going to uh, inspire us, this letter is going to comfort us, but this letter is also going to challenge us. If we read the Bible at any point in time and we're never challenged, we, we're, we're not reading the, the ways and the, the truth of Jesus. And so this is going to challenge us just as it challenged the people of Corinth. But will we sit and hear from the wisdom of the God who loved, him, who loved us so much that he gave his very own son for us? I want you to think about the people of Corinth who are hearing that they are going to have such a transformation in their lives that they are going to look like the strangest 1% of Corinth 
to the whole 99th percent of people in the city, they are going to be the weirdest, strangest, most obscure, most mockable, most pitiable people in the entire city because of their life and practice to Jesus. They are signing up for alienation. And the only reason they count it worth it is because of Jesus Christ. That Christ gave his life, body, and soul for them upon the cross, and they say, that's my Savior. They have seen and tasted the wisdom of God, and so they don't mind being called foolish by the city of Corinth. God is inviting us into doing the same thing. Let's take a moment and pray in response. Let's ask God to soften our hearts to his word. Let's also ask uh, God to give us a heart of gratitude that in his wisdom, he would give his son for sinners. And if you're here and you're not a disciple of Jesus, you're asking questions, you're, you're thinking about that, if you're comfortable with it, I would encourage you to just ask and say, God, if you're real, would you, would you show these things to me in my life? Let's take a moment to pray in response to God's word silently and I'll lead us in prayer aloud.